Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, it's certainly good to see all of you this morning. If you are an educator, you know that you can tell a lot about how much someone understands a certain topic or issue by the type of questions they're asking. The type of questions they ask when you're trying to explain or present an idea or a lesson often give you an insight into kind of how someone has received or understands that which you're saying. Um, If you've worked with youth, um, if you worked with youth in a ministry setting, this type of scenario has probably happened to you in one form or another. Um, but I can remember once giving a lesson to some Christian high schoolers, and the lesson was on purity. Every teenager's favorite topic, okay? They love to, to hear about this. And, and the lesson was on the purity that Jesus calls us to, kind of a kingdom purity. I was like very intentionally not trying to play into their terms and their language and kind of their game. And, you know, in my mind, like any, communica- any communicator's mind, I was killing it. I was doing a great job. And then all it takes is for some feedback for you to kind of come back down to earth, okay? So I finished this, like, in my mind, 30 minutes. In reality, probably like two and a half hours lecture on purity. And I'm like, any questions? And the student raised their hand. I'm like, it's good. Feedback. We're going to interact. And the student asked me some version of this question. Again, if you've worked with kids, you've probably heard this. How far is too far? And I was like, I think you misheard the lesson, right? I don't think this is, this is not what I was trying to get you to get out of this. Not necessarily a bad question, not necessarily never useful to answer a question like that to a kid, but I was trying to play a different game with you this morning. Um, and, and from where I'm standing, that question illustrates to me that you kind of missed the whole message that I was trying to get across. It sounds to me like you're asking me, how impure can I be without being impure. That question by itself kind of tells me maybe you've missed the heart of what I was getting at. We're in a sermon series on generosity, and oftentimes I think the questions that we ask when we see what God has commanded us about being generous with our lives and our time and our stuff illustrate kind of where our headspace is at, where our hearts are at. There's a story in the Gospels that always strikes me as profound kind of has always captured my heart. This rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Anyone familiar with the story? A lot of us are. And Jesus responds. He kind of asks him a question first, but eventually the answer Jesus gives to this man is, sell everything that you've got, give it to the poor, and follow me. And all of us, I think, can relate, can kind of put ourselves in the shoes of hearing that. I mean, imagine... Jesus showed up this morning, you heard from Christ, and very clearly he told you, sell everything that you own, give it to the poor, that's how you're going to follow me. You can kind of imagine how uncomfortable, how weighty, how dramatic that would feel and seem. And the rich young ruler does what I probably would have done. And he walks away, and he walks away sad. He came, he, he wanted to know how to find eternal life. The answer Jesus gave him was not the answer he was looking for. And despite what I think on his part was a lot of, I, I think he was probably willing to do quite a bit to follow Christ. Jesus found the kind of boundary to his obedience. 
and he walks away sad. And the disciples ask the question to Jesus, well, if this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? I think this is the question that comes to our minds. Jesus calls us to be generous. Now, thankfully for us, Jesus doesn't tell all of his disciples to sell everything that they have and give it to the poor to follow him. But note that he does tell that to someone, right? I mean, that shouldn't make us too comfortable. This is in his vocabulary when someone comes to him. This is, this is a, a tool in his toolbox that he has reached for. If you came to me and you're like, I think Jesus wants me to sell everything I have and give it to the poor, I might have some questions, but I wouldn't be like, well, obviously Jesus would never say something like this. No, I'd be like, sounds like Jesus. Perhaps unfortunately, but <laughs> seems on brand. We go, how is that possible? I mean, how could, how could one human being be so generous? How could, we, how could we possibly live up to a standard like that? And even if that standard's not the one for you and I personally, Jesus does tell all of his disciples, sell your possessions and give to the poor. This is a blanket command to his disciples that he gives in the Gospels. Notice this is kind of a sacrificial generosity. Not just if you have extra and you don't need it, you know, it's sitting in your storage room, maybe give that away. There's no take stuff that you have, sell that, and give that money to the poor. How's it possible to be so generous? What I want to do this morning is... By looking at the scriptures together, I want to maybe get us to some different questions. I want us to maybe react to a story like that with a different set of questions that maybe would reflect a different way of understanding who God is and what he's called us to be um, when he calls us to be generous. So if you have a Bible, flip with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy uh, 6, chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. If you're grabbing a hardback from underneath the seat around you, you're invited to do so. It'll be on page 994, I believe. First Timothy, a smaller book tucked away towards the end of the New Testament. Page 994, First Timothy chapter 6. You'll notice this is the same passage we were in last week as we started this series. We'll just stay in this passage. It's got enough for us for a few weeks. And we'll kind of explore different parts of the passage. You have here one of the most explicit commands to Christians, to you and I, followers of Jesus, to be generous. He says this, picking up in verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, 17, as for the rich in this present age, and we talked briefly last week, this means you and I. We might have some debt issues, we might be in some financial pickles, but historically and globally, if you're here this morning, if you're able to come here this morning, you are blessed with resources most human beings have never been blessed with. So this command is for us, as for the rich in the present age, Charge them not to be haughty or boastful or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And this is where we camped out last week. And we said, even before we get to the command to be generous, it always starts with an understanding of who God is, God's character and God's nature. God is a generous God. The phrase Timothy, uh, Paul uses here in 1 Timothy, he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God's not holding back on us. From all eternity, God has been generous. It's who he is, not just what he does. And when Christians are called to be generous, we're not called to do anything more than reflect the heart of the Father. There's a deep spiritual principle that you are what you worship. You become that which you worship. And the more Christians worship a God who is generous, the more we understand that all that we have is a gift from him. 
the more we will slowly but surely start to reflect that generosity. Before we even get to a command, it starts with God, God's character and God's nature. But in verse 18, we do get this command. They are, you and I, to do good, to be rich in good works. This is not the type of rich I wanted when I was a kid. But it is a type of richness to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, verse 19, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We get this command, be generous, be ready to share. And this is truly the command that is an operation for you and I as Christians. You've been given stuff. You've been given money. You've been given time. You've been given skills. You've been given opportunities. All of these have been given to you so that you can take them and share them with someone else so that God might provide that to someone through you. We all have almost an infinite list of things that God has given us. Maybe it's not money, but maybe it's time. Maybe it's not time, but maybe it's a certain skill set. We have these resources, and, and Jesus in the gospel calls us to use those to serve other people, not just to serve ourselves. And then he, he gives us some language here that, that sounds a lot like Jesus when he talks about storing up treasure for ourselves, a good foundation for the future. When he talks about taking hold of that which is truly life. I think this is also important, perhaps before we get to the command to be generous, because it reflects something that I think is deep and true, that the command to be generous only makes sense in light of. This, this treasure language, storing up treasure, taking hold of that which is life, this is desire language. Where is your treasure? Where, what are you working for? What are you investing in? What are you hoping for in the future? Where are you trying to find life? All of these things are part of the equation when it comes to you and I and generosity. For Jesus, when he talks about seeking treasure in heaven, he's talking about the kingdom of God. It's kingdom language. And the kingdom of God, which Jesus says is coming to the world in and through him, God's reign appearing on earth, the poor being lifted up, the sick and broken being healed and made new, God bringing redemption and forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of God has come in Christ. And God says, for those who wish to come and follow me and enter into the kingdom, they must choose what kind of treasure they want to take hold of. And Jesus speaks on money perhaps more than anything else in the Gospels. He talks about it a lot. He, he personifies it as if it's in competition with God. It's a very serious issue to Jesus. This heart language, this treasure language, this desire language, I think to us illustrates that there's more going on when it comes to generosity than just simply our actions. So there's a way in which you and I can act correctly, but yet still not be transformed the way Christ has come to transform us. Does that make sense? There's a way that you could give 10% of your stuff away and still be treasuring the wrong stuff. Does that make sense? Like you can, you can be following some external rule and still have your heart be trapped, still be worshiping the wrong stuff, still not be placing your trust in God. And so we get commands like this and we, we ask the question, right? I mean, how much? What, what, what is being generous? And I could give you a percentage or a dollar amount and you could be happy or upset about that. And again, maybe at certain times it's useful or not useful, 
But even before we get there, there's, I think, a heart change that happens. There's a, a new world in which these kind of things only make sense. Like the kid who asked, how far is too far? The question of how generous should I be sounds to me like, how greedy can I be? How greedy am I allowed to be? How much of this stuff and time and resources and skills am I allowed to use for me and myself, for my enjoyment and for my pleasure? Again, not a question that I don't understand or have never asked myself, but maybe a question that illustrates there's some more work to do. Some of Jesus' commands, some of the ways that you and I have been called to live as Christians, they don't make sense, they don't work well if we simply add them to our life as it already exists. Like many of us come to Jesus and we think that we already know basically what God is like. We already kind of know what God is like and we just kind of understand, okay, Jesus is God, so Jesus must be like that God. And we have a hard time letting Jesus define God for us. Being like, maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe we can't trust what we've been told our whole lives or kind of what our culture or society kind of builds up around us, the way we've been shaped, the imaginations we've been given, the stories we've been told. Maybe we've got to let Jesus redefine the whole thing for us. I think that's what's happening when it comes to generosity. For you and I to obey and obey fully, it requires a paradigm shift. It requires a different foundation from that which we have been given, from that which we default to in the world. It's like the slave owners in America who had to grapple with Jesus' command to love one another. There's a way in which slave owners tried to do this by being nice to their slaves. And we look at this with some historical distance and go, you are so culturally situated, you can't see why that's wrong. I mean, you can't see why there's something, Jesus calling you to more than just simply being nice to your slaves. To love your neighbor as yourself would mean you have no slaves, right? The paradigm is going to break completely. I think it is the case that you and I are so culturally conditioned by wealth and stuff, by capitalism and consumerism and materialism. It's so shaped even the way we think and talk that to get it right requires a completely different game, a different foundation. It requires a kingdom mindset or a kingdom heart. And we might oppose, say, what, what is opposed to a kingdom mindset? It's like a worldly mindset or a money mindset. It's out of a kingdom mindset. It's out of a, a life lived in the kingdom of God that we're able to be generous in a way that makes sense, in a way that leads us to, I think, the right questions, to questions that will allow us to be more faithful and to find more life and to store up more of our treasure in the right place. So what is the kingdom mindset? How would a kingdom mindset help us when it comes to stuff and money and things? How would it help us understand our call to be generous? I'm so glad you asked. There is a story that I want to turn to and explore with you this morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Mark. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark that I think will help illustrate the difference in our lives, in our minds, in our worlds when we're living in a kingdom, kingdom mindset versus a, a money or worldly mindset. It's a miracle story. It's a very popular one. It's told in uh, all of the Gospels. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. 
Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. The disciples are you and I. They are trying their best to follow Jesus. And at this particular point, in this particular story, they're stuck in a mindset in which the kingdom of God doesn't quite make sense, in which the logic of the kingdom doesn't work, in which the commands of the kingdom don't quite fit. And they give Jesus an option here that seems reasonable. This works in our world. It makes sense in our logic. The math adds up to us. It's a late hour. You have all of these people here. We're told there's, there's 5,000 men, so with women and children, even more than that. I mean, it's a huge crowd. Well, we need to send them away so they can get something to eat for themselves. This doesn't sound wrong to us. There's nothing evil sounding about this to me. And yet, Jesus says, you're not asking the right questions. You're not thinking of the right solutions. Your heart's not fully in a kingdom place yet. So he answers them, you give them something to eat. And the disciples are like, uh, I know this is a test of some sort. I don't know where we're going with this yet. They said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? This is not a real question the disciples are asking. They're just repeating the, the command of Jesus in a term that maybe he'll recognize how absurd this command was, right? Why don't you go feed them? So you're telling me I should go and get all of this money so that we can come back and feed this thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I'm going to keep drawing this question out to give you more time to realize this is not as good as the idea that I first came to you with. I don't know if anyone's ever asked you a question like that. For some reason, I get that a lot. And it helps. The time helps. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. I mean, can you imagine walking away from that? Being like, okay, we're going to, let's, I guess let's count them for Jesus. If he wants us to count them, if he wants a report on this. So they found out. I mean, imagine just that activity of them like asking around, counting it up. And what's going through their mind. Remember, they're supposed to be resting. They've just come back from a lot of different adventures. This crowd that has followed them, seeking more of the good news of Jesus. They find out, and they said, five, five loaves and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before all the people. He divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. We have this remarkable story, and it's always struck me as a beautiful example of the abundance that is found in the kingdom of God. It's always struck me as an example of how the economy of God is different from our economy. How the way resources work, the way stuff works, the way things get shared and distributed is different when Jesus is in operation than it is if you and I were setting something up. If we were building something, an event to, to preach, and thousands of people were there, we'd probably say, okay, from 12 to 1, go out, find a Chick-fil-A, get your food, and come back and meet us together. 
But Jesus has access to a different kingdom. He, his imagination is shaped by a different kingdom. His, his purpose and mission is coming from a different kingdom than that which is so often our default mode of operation. Here we see an example, I think, of the kingdom mindset that allows us to better understand and better live out the commands to be generous. And maybe even to ask some better questions about commands like, how could we possibly sell everything we have and give it to the poor? Three ways just in this story that I want to point out this morning that the kingdom mindset comes through for us in a way that's different from, from so often our default mindset. The first one is our purpose or our mission. When we're living in the kingdom of God, when the kingdom is really and fully taking over the way we live, the way we interact with others, the way we see the world, it affects how we see our purpose, how we see our mission. The disciples, they don't understand that there's an opportunity before them. They don't see the need before them. In a sense, it appears like perhaps they don't have the same level of compassion Jesus has. We're told Jesus has compassion for the people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. The disciples see them much more in capitalistic terms. They're neutral units who all have more or less neutral ability to go and get what they need and fill themselves up and come back. Jesus, though, sees them and says, these are people in need. Most likely, these people are very needy. Most likely, many of these people are very, very poor, abject poverty for the first century. Much less in a crowd like this, they're probably not going to get fed, even if there were much more resources than they had. There's going to be a lot of hunger, a lot of competition. It's going to be a pretty thing. You're going to have a hierarchy being built out. Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion. And in his mind, this is a perfect opportunity to perform a miracle. And a miracle for Jesus is not just naked power. A miracle is not just power for power's sake. A miracle is a way that Jesus unveils the true reality of what God is doing in the world through him. A miracle unveils the redemptive purpose behind Jesus and behind why he's come to our world. And so Jesus feeds people, but it's about more than just feeding people. It's not about less than that, but it's about more than that. It's a sign that what God has come to do in Christ is fill up those who are is lift up those who are poor, is heal those who are sick, is forgive those who have sinned. Jesus' miracles, they function as this picture of what God is doing and at work in our world doing. And the disciples, as they follow Jesus, are constantly invited into this. They're given this kingdom perspective, this kingdom mission, this kingdom purpose. In the passage in the Gospels where Jesus talks about treasures, putting your treasures in the right place, he says, seek the kingdom first, and all the rest will be added to you. Only the kingdom of God needs to be your priority. A kingdom mindset is a mindset that looks out at the world and looks at our life in the world and understands our purpose and our mission as being to bear witness to and live in and out of God's kingdom. Most of us, I'm guessing, grew up, and somewhere along the way, from probably lots of different places and sources, got told a narrative, kind of caught a narrative, were shaped by a narrative that taught us some form of the American dream, which is more or less that you'll work hard, be smart, and slowly but surely you'll make more money, be more secure, less things to worry about, 
be able to be served more and serve others less. And kind of the, the narrative here is that your life is ultimately about you. I mean, why do you exist? Why do you have breath? What's the purpose for you even being here? Well, for me and my family, for me to love and provide for my family, for me to enjoy the world God has given me. And, and usually we take religion or Jesus or the kingdom and we add on to that. And the kingdom says, no, no, no. My purpose for the world is above that. It takes over that. It's more overarching. It subsumes any other purpose or reason you might have or think you have for existing. To be generous is not to say, with this amount of stuff, I'll decide that this is kingdom stuff. It's to say, all of my stuff is kingdom stuff. It's not to say that this day is my day to serve in God's kingdom. It's to say, every day is a day in God's kingdom. It's not to say that at this place I worship Jesus and seek his kingdom. It's to say, any place I'm in, I worship Jesus and seek his kingdom. We have a problem when we try to kind of break off our faith and to make it just like a Sunday faith, and it's not Monday through Saturday, or it's just a dislocation type faith, and it's, it's not at work so much in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, at the grocery store. The kingdom, though, says, I, I need your entire allegiance. And this changes everything. The question is not just how are we to be generous now with the portion that is um, been anointed by oil and, and kind of designated for generosity or with our skills or our time or resources. Okay, this amount of time, this skill set is instead in all of it, how can I be generous? On Monday, how can I be generous? At my workplace, how can I be generous? At the volunteer opportunity, how can I be generous? At my church home, how can I be generous? There's, there's, no, there's no breaking things off here. There's a new purpose and a new mission given to the disciples of Jesus, and it's overarching and it's consuming. And so often we narrow it down and we try to domesticate it and tame it. And to be honest, it's boring. When we, when we wonder why kids are leaving the faith, they're leaving churches, for many of us, we're basically kids. The answer that we give back and that we see on a day-to-day basis is because you've made Jesus boring. When you've domesticated, when you've tamed him, it's, it's, when, it's when young people are, see the challenge of the kingdom. It's when they see the totality of Christ's call to discipleship. This is when they're inspired. This is when they're called to something beautiful, world-changing. A kingdom mindset redefines our purpose and our mission All that we are, everything that we have, all the time that we have, our entire lives are for something more than us. And this not only is true in God's kingdom, it's good news. This gets your treasure in the right place. This gets you to take hold of that which, in 1 Timothy, we're told is truly life. A kingdom mindset redefines our purpose. The other thing a kingdom mindset does is it redefines the resources we think that we're working with when it comes to being generous. So in the world, we're told to live for ourselves. In the kingdom, we're told to live for God and his will and purposes. In the world, we're told if we're going to give, we only have to give that which we've already acquired. In the kingdom of God, there's a different math at work. You see this here as Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish. The disciples look out, and their math works, right? There's not enough for everybody. 
And Jesus, seemingly operating with a different spreadsheet, goes, no, just keep grabbing. There's more than enough. What is Jesus tapping into here? Well, Jesus is fully awake and aware to the truth that God has infinite resources. That the Father lacks nothing. That he has nothing without having it in abundance. Jesus has a different kind of math that works here. There's no finite numbers for Jesus to crunch here. There's an infinite well that he pulls out of when he is getting these loaves and fish to multiply. Our default mode of living in the world is to live with a mindset of scarcity. It's to understand the world as basically a zero-sum game, which means you have or you don't have, but there's no both and. There's 100 things. You can only have 50 and someone else can only have 50, you both can't have 75, right? It's zero sum. There's nothing left over. There's no remainder here. And so we live lives of basic fear, afraid for our survival, for our well-being. We live lives of greed, grabbing and holding on to what we can. And we have a hard time letting it go. Because it's, in a world of scarcity, even the smallest act of generosity is a sacrifice. And are you willing to roll that dice? I mean, if the world is truly a world of scarcity, even the smallest act of generosity is a pretty big sacrifice. Who knows what's coming your way? I certainly don't. I don't know that you're going to have this job forever. I don't know that your, your stock portfolio is going to look this way for the next 5, 10, 15 years. And so it's hard to be generous. We're much more inclined to be greedy, to be fearful, to be afraid. Jesus, though, is constantly calling his followers to think and live in a mindset of abundance, to see that we're working with divine resources that don't end, that have no limit. And actions and activities and attitudes, they change when they come out of this type of mindset. Our solutions to problems would be different if when we went to look at the math we thought, oh, there's no, there's no bottom here to pull out of. There's no situation God's ever been confronted with and God's gone, okay, I don't have enough now. I'm going to have to save and, and hold on to some here if I'm going to take care of everyone. No, God's got abundant resources. They're infinite. And Jesus, over and over and over again, this is his main message when it comes to money, time and time again, don't be afraid, he says. That's why are you afraid? Your father will take care of you. Don't be afraid. Give your stuff away. It's taking your heart. It's taking your treasure. Seek God's kingdom. He knows what you need. He'll provide for you. Notice how directly contrasting that is to kind of our basic default mode of understanding the world, understanding our stuff. Don't be afraid. Trust God to provide. Be open-handed and quick to give and share and be generous. This is a kingdom mindset, a mindset of abundancy, not scarcity. And so the kingdom teaches us that we have a purpose that's much larger than simply living for ourselves. The kingdom teaches us that giving is accomplished not only through ourselves, that that we give out of God's resources. And the kingdom also shows us that we obey 
in a way that's not just by ourselves. We obey with other people. What's interesting about Mark's story here, the reason I chose Mark over the other Gospels as they tell the story is that Mark emphasizes the disciples' role in this miracle. Notice how much of the action goes through the disciples. You go, he says, give them something to eat. You go, count up the loaves and bread. After breaking it, you go, distribute it. The disciples are called to participate in this miracle. They're called to bear witness to it. And they're not called to do it by themselves. They're called to do it as a group of people following Jesus. There's more than one miracle probably happening in this story. Some scholars read this story and they say, if you really understand this in its ancient context, it's somewhat miraculous that all the people even get fed, even if there's enough. Because people are living out of this fearful scarcity mindset. This is probably one of the reasons Jesus has them sit in groups of 50 or 100. So they can make sure everyone gets some. There can be some accountability. People aren't left for themselves to try to grab what they can. There's a group. And we can say, oh, this person has missed out. Let's make sure they get some some bread and some fish. I truly believe that one of the biggest ways that our minds and our hearts get pulled out of the kingdom when it comes to trying to live obediently to Jesus is by trying to do this by ourselves. You and I were never intended to follow Christ by ourselves. You and I were never intended to obey Jesus by ourselves. And as long as we stay in this default mode, this worldly mindset, which says, I'm basically here by myself. I'm naked and alone. I can't really trust on anybody else. As long as you're in this mode of thinking and living and interacting with the world, most of what Jesus commands you is going to seem impossibly difficult to do. But the moment that you open up your imagination to say, well, what if, what if I wasn't by myself? What if there were other people next to me? Could I do things that I otherwise couldn't do because I have a brother and a sister right here? Because there are other disciples of Jesus. Because together we bear witness to God's kingdom. I think this is one of the best questions we can ask ourselves when it comes to obeying Jesus here with generosity. So many of Jesus' commands seem so impossible to us, but I think it's often because we're still thinking as individuals. We're not thinking as a a community. The rich young ruler, I said I'd want to get to a, a new question for him. He walks away sad. And the disciples ask, how is this possible? And we ask, how is this possible? How could a human being ever do that? And Jesus says to the disciples, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And we like to take that and go, ha, that story doesn't really matter, I guess. If this guy can only be saved if he does this, if that's what discipleship looks like for him, but it's impossible for him, then I guess God will save us even though we're not obedient. That's not what Jesus was getting at when he says what's impossible for man is possible for God. He's, what he's getting at is, while it's impossible for man to follow Jesus in that way, with God, this will become a possibility. There'll be such a changing of hearts and minds. The kingdom will create such a new world that people will live in ways that otherwise are unexplainable, that otherwise were not possible. A better question for the rich young ruler 
then how could a human being possibly be that generous would be this. What type of community would have to exist for someone to obey Jesus in that way? What type of community would someone have to be involved with, belong to, for them to hear the word of Christ come to them and say, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and for them to be able to follow that obediently? I would suggest you can never do that on your own. But if you have a community of people that take care of one another, look out for one another, they're truly committed to the well-being of one another. And I suggest that maybe you have a community that now has people who can hear that and say, I can obey. I can trust. I'm not thrown outside naked and alone by myself if I do this. I've got brothers and sisters committed to taking care of me. The rich young ruler walks away alone. I wonder if it would have been different if he had come in Acts 2 when the disciples are sharing everything in need. Right, they, they, they kind of sell everything they got and they share all their resources together in Acts 2, the early church. I wonder if he had come during that time, if maybe he would have thought differently. Like, oh, well, if, I, if I'm part of that, then maybe I can. Maybe some, there's more freedom given to me. Maybe there are more options available to me. Maybe I'm able to do things, exercise certain muscles of faith that I otherwise wouldn't have exercised. So often... We limit our imaginations when it comes to following Jesus, and it limits our ability to trust him. For so many of us, the prayer, give us our daily bread that we find in the Lord's Prayer, is a prayer that we can't resonate with because we've got the bread stocked in our cabinets. We can say it, but it's hard for us to feel it. But what if all the bread had been given away? We didn't know where the bread was coming from. And we could truly pray, give us today our daily bread. It would exercise our faith in a way that otherwise it's just impossible to be exercised. It would allow you to live into the life of Christ that has been offered to us. What type of community would make possible obedience to Jesus? Because this is the type of community that the church has been called to be. The church, the community of believers have been called to be a community where people can learn to follow and obey Christ, where people can be given the resources and ability to follow and obey in a way they otherwise wouldn't. I mean, this, this changes so many things for me. We live in a world full of problems, and we're all sometimes too aware of these problems. And our solutions to these problems are usually small and short-sighted. And I think for many reasons, it's because we so default to this individualism. There's an issue with debt, healthcare, medical debt. We go, well, what could I possibly do? Probably nothing. Probably not a lot. What could the church do? So, so often, if we were to ask this question, what comes to everyone's mind are political answers. Here's what I want the government to do about this issue. I would suggest for the church, this may be short-sighted and small. That, that maybe these type of solutions aren't really stretching our imagination in the way the kingdom has called us to imagine the world operating. And so this is something that has happened. A few months ago, a group of churches got together and they said, hey, we've got some resources among us. 
And they bought up the medical debt of their community and the people around them. Forgave it. Paid it off. Because what they could do together was much more than they could possibly ever do alone. And did they have to get entangled in parts in politics? Did they have to demonize and put down other people? No, they were able to freely and openly bear witness to what God is doing in Christ. They were able to bear witness to the kingdom that has come. They were able to bear witness to a people who have been made free. Free from stuff, free from greed, free from fear. Be generous. Be rich in good works. Be ready to share. How is this possible? What's the right approach towards generosity? Well, it starts before we get to even a mechanical understanding of what we're actually doing in action. It starts with our, our very hearts. What is our desire? What's our understanding of the world and who we are and how we exist in the world, our purpose in the world? And the more we can live out of a kingdom mindset, the more we can seek God's kingdom first, the more we'll find that not only does generosity make more sense to us, it's more possible. We're more able to be generous. And in that generosity, we'll find our treasures being put in the right place. We'll find, I'm taking hold of more life than I was taking hold of in the past. Why? Because I've been transformed. Why? Because I've been brought into a brand new world. Why? Because God's doing something in Christ that makes new a reality that once did not exist. You and I are called to be generous, be rich in generosity. And this starts with an understanding of who God is. It starts with an understanding of what God has done and is doing in Christ and the role that we play in it. Like the disciples, Jesus, I think, comes to us and says, go feed them to the needs of the world, to the needs of each other. How will we respond? What solutions will we think of? What will we say we're able to do or not do? How will we approach obedience? Maybe from a mindset that is kingdom in nature.